Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.22, The Dangers of 1678 and Popish Plots. Last time, we had moved the show back up to New England and began looking at the political situation immediately following, and indeed during the later stages of King Philip's War. The Privy Council back in England had appointed Edward Randolph as the official messenger to the colonies, telling him that he was to bring back two representatives from Massachusetts and was to spend his time in the colony spying upon every possible aspect of life. While the official report by Randolph was a disturbing tale of a colony with far too much sovereignty, the outbreak of Bacon's Rebellion all but shelved any plans of intervention in New England, at least for the time being. The colonial government back in Massachusetts was still, however, expected to send their two representatives across the Atlantic back to London. However, they moved at a glacial pace on this, likely not too terribly excited for the hearings to take place. Beyond that, based on who the colonists sent, which we will talk about in a minute, it shows a degree of caution on their part. The colonists didn't choose to send their A-team, nor really even their B-team. Rather, they settled on two men with a limited view of internal colonial matters. This may well have been a mission where the prevailing view of the colonists was to send men who did not have enough power to be capable of doing much damage at all. Based on the nature of the investigation, it was looking pretty unlikely that anybody could have negotiated any royal concessions directly from the crown. Therefore, the thought process was probably that it made more sense to send two representatives with minimal authority, whose only job was to steer the proverbial bus. The primary excuse for this continuing delay on part of the colonists had been the ongoing war up in New England. However, by the end of 1676, the king had grown tired of waiting. The Massachusetts colonists made the claim that a combination of fighting the war, sickness, and an inability for the general court to meet was delaying selecting agents to head back to London. Well, technically this was true and the war did not end until 1678, the war in Massachusetts was wrapping up right about the time that Randolph was leaving. Sure, conditions in Massachusetts weren't what you would really consider to be ideal. However, to say that the colony could not spare a man to be a representative really was not believable either. Charles II, wishing to move the show along, finally demanded in October of 1676 that the Bay Colony send somebody over immediately. Realizing that Charles was not messing around with this demand, the colonists selected William Stratton and Peter Bulkley to be their guys. Both men did wield some power in the colony, though neither was standing atop that pyramid. Bulkley was the Speaker of the Lower House in Massachusetts, and Stratton was a local magistrate. As I mentioned a moment ago, nothing about Stratton or Bulkley really stood out. Neither man was particularly skilled, nor was either the best choice to handle the highly sensitive mission. It is important to understand here that it is not just the colony that is walking on a tightrope here, but it is the crown as well. The king needed Massachusetts to fall in line and start following the laws. For the crown, there is no debating this, and the colony falling in line with royal prerogative was an absolute prerequisite. The king may have felt anger towards the structure of the colony considering that they had remained staunchly loyal to Cromwell during the Civil Wars and shed few tears over the death of Charles I. However, despite that, Charles II did not recommend anything that one would consider extraordinary during the time. He just needed them to get with the program. Heading into these negotiations, 
it isn't as though Massachusetts was without advantages. A major advantage for them is that colonial government is, and always will be, a dicey game at best. The colonial population in New England was made up of people who had voluntarily traveled to North America, slaves obviously notwithstanding here, who are then separated from the home islands. It is nearly impossible to believe that culturally and politically, that group of people is not going to start to move away from royal prerogative eventually. Charles II was keenly aware of the dangers of sending a royal governor into Massachusetts and asserting his will at the end of a musket. Would it get the job done? Probably. However, the far easier solution was always going to be to get the local elites to fall in line with the crown's objectives. The idea being that if the local elites were on board, everybody would pretty much fall in line behind them. This would have the added benefit of helping avoid unfortunate situations where angry mobs would storm the governor's mansion in the middle of the night with pitchforks and torches. The question therefore becomes what the crown's demands were and what we can establish from them. The crown demanded that the colonists stop coining money, repeal all of the laws that violated English law, relinquish claims on land that existed outside the borders of the colony, and finally to enforce the Navigation Acts. From the standpoint of the crown, nothing here probably looked all that demanding and honestly all seemed like a logical thing that any law-abiding colony should be doing. The patent that Massachusetts had gave a specific land grant. The idea that the colonists in New England could unilaterally expand outside of those boundaries made no sense. The crown established these borders and would enforce them. This is a multifaceted thing from the crown. Beyond establishing that the crown alone had the power to establish such borders, it also kept Massachusetts from growing too big and trespassing onto other claims. Beyond that, with a colony that was as problematic as Massachusetts, you don't really want to encourage them to expand outward beyond where they already are. The remainder of the demands go directly to the administration of the government and the economy. Following the laws of England only made sense. It had been well established by that point that local laws were necessary. However, those local laws should not exceed the laws of England itself. If a law was antithetical to then existing English law, then that law was invalid. Specifically, the English bring up the Navigation Acts here, which fall into both categories. The Crown both expected and demanded that the colonists follow royal laws, which the Navigation Acts were, and at the same time wanted to gain the economic advantage from those acts. Absolutely nobody outside of England liked the Navigation Acts, and the Crown could not risk there being no consequences for ignoring the Acts, lest the other colonies realize that ignoring them is even an option. The demands of the King on the Massachusetts colonists was this, obey the patent that we granted you and simply get with the program. To these demands, Stratton and Bulkley shrugged their shoulders and maintained that they lacked the authority to make such concessions. After all, that's probably something that they should present back at the general court, who would then need to be the ones to agree to such changes. The king, for his part, also decided that in order to better enforce the Navigation Acts, and likely to keep a better eye on the colony in general, that he would appoint a customs officer to Massachusetts. Despite the apparent lack of acceptance by the Massachusetts representatives, the thinking was likely that these were not mere suggestions, but rather declarative statements of what needed to happen as they were delivered directly to those chosen to represent the colony, 
the message should have been received loud and clear back in Massachusetts. Stopping short of appointing a royal governor reduced the chances of hostilities flaring up when there was already so much going on down in Virginia. Besides, the plan was still in place that John Barry could pay a visit to the colony following operations in Virginia, just to ensure that everybody was on board with the new plan. Unsurprisingly, back in New England, the reception to these new reforms was met with a complete lack of enthusiasm. With obviously high stakes, one would think that the colony would take it seriously. After all, they obviously understood that they were staring at the prospect of a royal governor. However, the new regulations were largely ignored by the Bay Colony leadership. As something of a half-measure, the colonists did agree that they would begin to better enforce the much-hated Navigation Acts, likely hoping that as long as they kept sending their money back to England on time, the Crown would ignore the other problems. However, in a show of independence from the Crown, instead of simply accepting the custom duties like everybody else, the General Court of Massachusetts legislated for the acts and wrote them into law. This essentially is a situation of, you're not making me follow the Navigation Acts. I'm doing it because I want to. By the time that 1678 rolled around, it had become clear to everyone that the Massachusetts Bay Colony had zero interest in playing ball. Having all but ignored direct orders from the Crown, and with John Barry's trip now nothing more than a mischance, a growing segment inside the colony began calling for the installation of a royal governor. The growing interest in colonial intervention opened up a period where the Attorney General in London began examining the legality of the Bay Company Charter. For now, you can store away the knowledge that the Attorney General was looking at the Charter. However, this is going to be something we will talk much, much more in depth about in our next episode. Still in London, Stratton and Bulkley were badly out of their element now. Well, their argument that everything was up to the general court and that they lacked the power to make decisions had always irked the English in London, it was now a position that had become increasingly unacceptable. The king was going to enforce his will regardless of the power given to the Massachusetts representatives. The argument made by the colonists is that yes, they were English citizens, but the entire point of their colony was to be a godly commonwealth. Being Englishmen, they enjoyed all the rights that Englishmen historically had enjoyed. One of those most deeply held rights was having a voice amongst those legislating the laws. So, more specifically, representation in Parliament. However, Massachusetts was not represented in Parliament, therefore their authority over Massachusetts should be rightfully limited in scope. The question over the rights of Parliament to legislate without allowing colonial representation in that same body is going to remain an issue right up until the Revolution, and is in fact one of the single largest causes of that conflict. Finally, seeming to understand that the king had reached the end of his rope, Massachusetts did agree to acquiesce to some of the royal demands, namely the Navigation Acts we talked about a moment ago. However, even then, they did not just accept what England demanded of them. Rather, the general court went the route of legislating all of the changes themselves. Again, in the act of voluntarily legislating the acts, rather than agreeing to executive action, it was a method whereby the colonists hoped that they would pacify England while maintaining their independence. Though the question has come up before, we really see Massachusetts here struggling with the question of what their role in the greater English empire really was. 
Perhaps no question in American colonial history is going to be more critical than trying to establish the place of the North American colonists in that greater English system. We are going to start coming back to this question over and over moving forward, as it is going to become a constantly repeating theme. This is a question that there in many ways will never be a clear answer to. And in another way, there is going to be an extraordinarily clear answer to. Looking forward to what will become season four, there is never going to be a clear answer of the role of the North American colonies in the English Empire. The answer that is going to come down is that the North American colonies have no role in that empire and should be free and independent of it. However, this is all a story for the future, and the colonists of 1678 don't realize the nature of the battle that they are now engaging. During the sessions of 1678, Stratton and Bulkley were again asked to defend the position of the colony and why they acted in the way they did. The best answer at this point was to simply attempt to show that the Massachusetts Bay Colony had been a loyal colony by helping prevent French and Dutch incursion into the region. Finally, in 1679, the representatives were finally allowed to return home. They did come back with a message that the king expected them to send new representatives. However, this was a position that the general court again decided to stall on. Of course, a problematic New England colony was one of numerous other things going on for Charles II during this time. England by this point had become a global power and had other things beyond the colonies going on. In fact, from the late 1670s through the early 1680s, a scandal would rock England that is going to have profound effects for both the mother country and the colonies in the years to come. From what has essentially been the second episode of this podcast, we have spent a whole lot of time dealing with the religious question in England. From the reforms of Henry VIII, through the turbulent times under Mary and Elizabeth, and then the English Civil Wars ending in the beheading of Charles I, the religious landscape in England has always been an important storyline for us. It shouldn't therefore be terribly surprising that after 160 or so years of religious turmoil inside of England, there is about to be more religious issues arising inside of the mother country. I've said this before, but before we go any further, it bears reminding. Over the next few episodes, we are going to spend a decent chunk of time talking about issues revolving around the religious situation inside of England from the later part of the 1670s on forward until the end of the 1680s. This is going to be what amounts to a Cliff Notes version of some very complicated events. My goal remains to give you enough background to understand events in the colonies without taking you down long rabbit holes. The problem for England moving towards the 1680s is an unclear path forward in succession. Now, unlike the problem of Henry VIII not having a son, people pretty much knew who the next king was going to be. Charles II had no children, so the crown was due to pass to his brother, James, the Duke of York. We have already spent some significant time with the Duke of York earlier this season in our episodes on New York. It is James who had originally appointed Edmund Andrus to be the royal governor in the newly captured English colony of New York. What had not really come up at the time, as it was not terribly relevant, is the matter of religion. Charles II was an Anglican. There had never been much question about that. He did not seem to share his father's more questionable religious leanings and never really appeared to be a closeted Catholic. While he was not exactly a great fan of the Puritans, he did begrudgingly tolerate them, as he genuinely does not seem interested in fighting another civil war, 
especially considering how the last one had turned out for the Stuart family. Beyond that, while Charles II certainly was not a Catholic himself, he was tolerant of them. This toleration may have come from the fact that his brother, James, the Duke of York, was a devout Catholic. Now, initially, this really was not that much of a problem. Charles was married to Catherine of Braganza, the daughter of King John IV of Portugal. So long as Charles II and Catherine have children, they could raise them as Anglicans, therefore making the Catholicism of James a moot point. Unfortunately for Catherine, things were not going to go that easily. After suffering through a series of miscarriages, it became increasingly apparent that Catherine was not going to bear any children. This created something of a potential crisis for the succession of the crown. Without children of his own, the crown would pass from Charles to his brother James. This presented several issues for the citizens of England that were bound to make everybody nervous. During the 1640s, the country had gone through a devastating series of civil wars. Nobody wanted to see England thrown back in that direction. However, at the same time, nobody was looking to return England to the Catholic Church. While there were undeniably detractors from the Anglican Church, namely the Quakers and the Puritans, very few in England were keen on seeing the Catholics re-establish a foothold. Charles II was cognizant of this potential issue and decided that he would do something to get ahead of it. Despite James being an ardent Catholic, Charles II convinced him to raise his children in the Anglican Church. This meant that his eldest daughter Mary, as well as her siblings, were raised as Anglicans, thus minimizing any concerns that the ushering in of James would have also meant the destruction of the Church of England. As James II had no sons, the idea was that should Charles II die prematurely and James take the throne as a Catholic monarch, the people would be assured that this was merely a temporary thing and that whomever follows him is going to be an Anglican. Not wanting to really rock the boat, James went along with the request of his brother in the interest of keeping the peace. This included resigning his position as the Lord High Admiral in the Navy following the 1673 Test Acts. The Test Acts were put in place in 1673, requiring that any holder of public office in England had to pledge their allegiance to the Anglican Church, something that James was not willing to do. All of this basically boiled down to the fact that James, though unwilling to drop his Catholic beliefs, wasn't planning at least on the surface, of doing something dramatic like challenging the status quo of religion in England. Despite plans being in place to prevent a potential Catholic dynasty, and James by all rights not looking to cause waves, not everybody was thrilled by the prospect of having a Catholic king. Obviously inside of England, there is going to be a large segment of the population that wanted absolutely nothing to do with a Catholic king. Well, religious peace mostly held up in England during the reign of Charles II, the entire nation was teetering on the edge of a potential religious crisis. Enter into our story, Titus Oates. Titus Oates, a former Anglican priest, decided that he was going to do what he could to blow the entire thing up. Titus Oates, along with Israel Tong, wrote a pamphlet claiming to have insider information on a plot to kill high-ranking Anglican government officials. At the top of the plot was the planned assassination of Charles II himself. This plan was to be carried out by Catholic Jesuits inside of England. The plot was leaked by Tong to an English chemist, Christopher Kirkby, who was an acquaintance of the king. Kirkby, likely not wanting to risk sitting on such explosive information, should it be true, contacted Charles II and informed him of what he knew. 
Charles II never really seems to have taken the entire episode terribly seriously. Yet still he decided to grant an audience to Kirkby and Tong, the latter denying that he knew who had penned the pamphlet. Despite his doubts, Charles did give in to pressure and agreed to allowing for an investigation into the matter. Though he, as well as the members of the Privy Council, thought that it would be best to keep this entire plot quiet and out of the public. Unfortunately, as the conspiracy grew, it became too big to conceal, and sure enough, it became increasingly well known. Now, just to really pour some gasoline on a growing fire, during the investigation in 1678, Sir Edmund Godfrey, a member of Parliament and a staunch Protestant, who had apparently believed the plot all along, was found brutally murdered. People wasted absolutely no time in pinning his murder on the Catholics, further igniting the rapidly growing anti-Catholic feelings in London. As the investigation wore on, and the tract was eventually tied to Titus Oates, hearings were held before the Privy Council, where Oates would eventually give up over 80 names as being co-conspirators. This led to the arrest of five Catholic members of the House of Lords, as well as an expansion of the Test Acts. Previously, the Test Acts had not included Parliament. However, following what had by then become known as the Popish Plot, the Acts were now extended and Catholics would also be barred from service in Parliament. In addition to the new Test Acts, a law was passed banning Catholics from being within 20 miles of London with James being excluded from the new law. By the time that 1679 rolled around, the plot was just about the worst-kept secret in all of England. Pretty much everybody knew about the Catholic conspiracy to kill Charles II. What followed was a wave of anti-Catholic sentiment throughout England. This is not to say that there had not been anti-Catholic sentiment prior to this event. After all, as we know, there has been over 150 years of anti-Catholic sentiment going back to Henry VIII. As this information spread throughout England and Scotland, it was a case where the population was more than happy to believe it. This hysteria that began to spread led to the execution of Catholics, including more than a dozen during the summer months of 1679. At a rally in London that reportedly 200,000 people showed up for, the Pope was burned in effigy. All the meanwhile, Titus Oates kept coming up with more names and more accusations. It is worth noting as well at this point that at the highest levels of government, absolutely nobody believed a word that Oates said. However, their belief mattered little in the situation. Charles II, though an Anglican, did surround himself with Catholics, including most prominently his own brother. For the public, this gave them something to worry about. There is a Catholic plot to assassinate the king, and yet he surrounds himself with the same people that wish to do him harm. This incident, known to history as the Popish Plot, was totally fake. Eventually, Titus Oates was labeled as a fraud and sentenced to life in prison, plus five days each year he would be paraded throughout the streets and publicly whipped. Eventually, Oates would receive a pardon by William and Mary and die a largely forgotten man in 1705. Weakened by the Popish plot, though for other unrelated reasons as well, in December of 1678, Charles disbanded Parliament and general elections were called. The next Parliament that would be called was known as the First Exclusionary Parliament. Well, the claims of Titus Oates were fake, the damage had already been done. With anti-Catholic sediment at a fever pitch, 
Protestants inside of Parliament decided that the time was right to make their move and seize on the opportunities presented. Well, not terribly interested in the idea of a repeat of the events of the 1640s, at the same time, many in Parliament were not thrilled with the idea for James to take the crown in case of Charles II's death. Regardless of any safeguards put into place, James was a Catholic in a time when being Catholic in England was not a terribly popular thing to do. Beyond that, it was lost on absolutely nobody who the single biggest benefactor to the Popish plot really was. If Charles II were to be assassinated, it was James who would have become the king. Even if James himself was not a co-conspirator, for a Catholic interested in overthrowing the Anglican Church in England, everybody would have agreed that the best time to do it would have been under the reign of James. In this situation, you don't actually need him to be in on the plot at all. All the Catholics needed to do was ensure that he gets to the throne in the first place. This, therefore, in the eyes of many in Parliament, made James a potentially dangerous figure simply for existing. The solution in their eyes was obvious. In order to protect Charles II, as well as England from a Catholic incursion, James could never become the king. This leads to a three-year period from 1679 through 1681, where multiple bills were introduced for the sole purpose of excluding James from succession to the crown. The plan being that if Charles II died, the crown would skip over James and pass directly to his Anglican daughter Mary. During what would become known as the Exclusion Crisis, Parliament became divided into what would eventually become the Whigs, who supported the exclusion of James, and the Tories who opposed the measure. The Exclusion Crisis absolutely gripped England during the three years that it took place. However, ultimately no law excluding James will ever be passed. It is worth noting here that as a result of Whig fear that Charles II would move against them for their part in the exclusion crisis, they decided to take a self-protective action. Namely, they introduced a codified writ of habeas corpus. A writ of habeas corpus is simply a document that states that a person must be brought before a court promptly to justify why they are being held. It is meant to be an act against illegal detention. This is something that remains in the English system and would ultimately become a critical hallmark of the American legal system as well. The exclusion crisis would finally come to an end with the so-called Oxford Parliament, which was called on March 21st, 1681. By this time, Charles II had grown deeply suspicious about a parliamentary challenge to his authority, and after multiple disbandings of Parliament, decided that his best move was to remove the Parliament from the increasingly disgruntled atmosphere around London. With Parliament removed to Oxford, Charles made overtures to place limits on James in order to protect the Anglican Church. However, Lord Shaftesbury, a leading Whig, declined the measure and once again put forth a measure to exclude James from the line of succession. This was the third time that Parliament had put such a bill forward, and Charles II had had enough. On March 28th, just a week after calling the Parliament, Charles II disbanded Parliament for the final time. After receiving a loan from Louis XIV, Charles no longer was dependent on Parliament for financing. It would be four years before another Parliament would be called, and when it was called, it was not Charles, but then King James II who would call them. For the English, the events of the Popish plot and the exclusion crisis can be seen as a precursor to the Glorious Revolution, 
that is coming at the end of the 1680s. To be clear, these events are not necessarily considered part of the Glorious Revolution. However, they help set the pieces in place that are going to make the Glorious Revolution possible. Well, we could spend a ton of time looking more in depth at the minutiae of the Popish Plots and Exclusion Crisis and their effects on England, it would ultimately fall outside the scope of this podcast. Our question is directed back towards New England and the story of what this means for the New Englanders. For New Englanders at large, the Popish Plot and Exclusion Crisis were a very welcome respite from their problems. The colony was looking at various serious concerns during 1678. The king was upset with how New England was being run, and was increasingly concerned with the dangerously independent spirit that had proliferated throughout the colony. However, the events in England meant that attention was diverted away from Massachusetts. The leadership back in London simply had bigger issues to deal with than a wayward colony back across the Atlantic. This was very good news for Massachusetts, as the attention that had been uncomfortably increasing on them was suddenly diverted elsewhere. Now, it is worth mentioning briefly that the events going on in England are affecting some of the people who have already appeared in our story. William Penn, for example, was involved in the entire affair, generally writing defenses for the Quakers. Many in England felt that the Quakers were closet Catholics, and the job fell on Penn to convince people otherwise. Edmund Andros, who we are going to be spending a lot of time with in the next few episodes, was also right in the middle of all of this. If you recall from our episode on New York, Andros had been recalled from America to face charges for mismanagement. Andros was a company man to his core. However, the problem is that his loyalty lied with James. Recall that it was the Duke of York who had appointed him to the position in the first place. It therefore shouldn't be missed that Andros himself came under scrutiny at a time when Parliament was doing all they could to exclude James from the crown. This was the atmosphere that Andros walked into upon arriving in England for his trial in 1681. Edmund Andros was, of course, acquitted of all the accusations, and obviously would have likely felt a great deal of relief following Charles II dissolving the Oxford Parliament, and thus bringing an end to the ongoing exclusion crisis. In the years to come, we are going to see the relationship between James and Edmund Andros evolve in such a way that it is going to place Andros front and center in the narrative. Next time, despite being saved once again by the crisis in New England, all good things eventually come to an end. When we come back in our next episode, we are going to look at that time for the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as they finally run out of time to stall when England decides that it is time to reassert royal control over its New England colonies. Until then, I hope you all have a great two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. Finally, if you are one of my listeners in the United States, I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I will see you back here in two weeks when we begin to discuss the dissolving of the Massachusetts Bay Company Charter. <laughs>